Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of The Cranog. Today, we're talking about rocks. The stone that I'm going to be chatting about today is maybe the first ever folkloric site that I visited. Um, the story behind the stone also happens to be one of my favourites, and that is Martin and the Dragon, and it goes like this. The farmer of Potemptin lived with his nine beautiful daughters. One day, seemingly like any other, the farmer sent his eldest daughter to fetch some water from the well. As the morning turned to afternoon, the farmer grew worried for his daughter, and so sent the second eldest after her. When evening came, neither of the daughters had returned. The next day, the farmer sent each of his daughters in turn to find their siblings and bring them home until only he remained on the farm. On the second evening, a young man by the name of Martin called by the farm, searching for the farmer's eldest daughter. He was much dismayed when the farmer told him that all of his daughters had disappeared and that he was at a loss of what to do. Martin was so in love with the farmer's eldest daughter that he promised the farmer that he would find the nine young women and at once he ventured into the night. Martin saw nothing strange on his journey until he reached the well, where he was met with a most upsetting sight. The well was gone, replaced by a sprawling nest of bone and smouldering coal. Martin wept when he sighted the nine mangled bodies of the farmer's daughters and presiding over them all, a mighty slumbering dragon. Martin, enraged by what he had seen, wasted no time in hurrying back to the village and to the smithy to where he worked. He saddled his mare, collected a spear and galloped straight back towards the dragon's nest as the sun was rising in the east. The dragon was awake by the time he got there, eyes glinting at the promise of a new meal when it spotted Martin on his mare. It lunged for him, but Martin was faster. He darted across the fields with the dragon in pursuit, circling the beast and confusing it. Martin aimed his spear, but at no point could he find a moment to strike. His mare tiring, Martin was growing desperate, as, and as he lured the dragon to Baldragon, a great many villagers rushed, rushed to meet him. They had heard the ugly news from the farmer and had gathered to help, for no small number of them had lost loved ones to the dragon as well. As the dragon approached, the crowd lured the dragon into a nearby body of water. With an almighty splash, the dragon took to the water and let out a gelp. It struggled out, spraying water across all who had gathered and fled as the angry mob pursued. The dragon was injured and heavy with water when the villagers, led still by Martin, met it in the fields at Strath Martin. Martin approached the beast, who lashed out in fear. He gripped his spear but hesitated, for one miscalculated throw and the dragon would surely engulf them all in its rage. The villagers, excited and anxious to see the dragon struck down, cried, Strike, Martin! Martin didn't wait a second longer and hurled his spear as fast and hard as he could straight into the dragon's heart. The dragon let out a shriek as it crumpled to the ground and the villagers cheered and celebrated that the beast was no more. To remember his nine daughters and Martin's brave victory, the farmer had a stone erected at the very place the dragon fell to document the deeds of Martin, which can still be seen to this day. Um, and indeed, it still can be seen to this day. So just outside of the village of Bridgefoot in Angus, beneath the Sidlaw Hills, there's a farmer's field with a stone in it that's surrounded by this old iron fence. Um, it's known as the Baludrin Stone, and it's also known as Martin's Stone, and it's a Pictish sandstone, standing stone that has been a, become associated with the story of Martin and the Dragon thanks to the carvings on it. It's become very weather-beaten now, which means that you can't really see the figures anymore, but if you find the stone on Canmore, you can see some sketches and some older pictures of it. Um, Canmore is this site online where you can see 
kind of old historic monuments and things. Um, and the pictures that they have on Canmore really show off the figures in their full glory. We'll never really know what the top of the stone depicted because it's broken. Um, but what we do have depicts the pictures, Pictish Beast, uh, two men on horses and a snake with a Z rod behind it. You could probably interpret this as a battle with a beast of some kind, but what do these images mean in Pictish iconography? Z-rods, which look exactly like how they sound, are decorative Z-shapes, and there are many theories about what they represent, but the truth is it's all guesswork. Some of the opinions, in some of the options include a symbol of the worlds of the living and the dead, a symbol of light and dark, a broken spear, a lightning strike, or even a loud noise produced by two symbols. The serpent on a Z-rod also appears quite frequently, which is also said to represent anything from medicine to the death of a warrior. The Pictish Beast is probably the most famous piece of Pictish iconography, simply down to the mystery surrounding it. For the listeners, it looks a bit like a seahorse with four legs, um, and experts are divided on what it is, though general consensus puts it some kind of marine animal, maybe a porpoise. So I'm not sure how that fits into the story of the Dundee Dragon, but there you go. Um, so is the Martin Stone a tribute to a battle with a fearsome dragon, or simply another piece of Pictish history whose story is shrouded by time? Perhaps we will never know. The end. That's such a good story. I'm always so shocked every time that the farmer goes, ah, my daughter didn't come back. I'll send my daughter. Oh no, she shouldn't take anyone with her. <laughs> You'd, yeah, you'd think by the time he got to like the sixth or seventh one, he'd be like, there might be something <laughs> up here. In a world where you could be ambushed by all matter of beast on your road somewhere, why would anyone go, I think you should investigate a scary noise by yourself with nobody else? <laughs> yeah. It just seems rather silly. I think with the Dundee Dragon one, it's quite an interesting story to look at why that might have emerged out and I think that's one that it is largely related to physical sites mm -hmm. because you've got that big stone that was at the end that had the serpent and things and traditionally in, in Scottish folklore large serpent and dragon were kind of synonymous mm -hmm. um, so you could see where that maybe came from and then leading up to it is the road of Strathmartin which would be the broad valley of Martin so maybe they were like well and that's why they linked the kind of phrasing of strike Martin to mean Strathmartin in that way and then the story of the, like the nine daughters, there was likely the nine maidens well was probably a holy... That was a site, we don't know if it was before or after the story, but that was a site that was there. And likely that would have been some sort of holy site relating to the nine maidens, which is kind of a, a common theme across kind of Britain and parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. So the, And then there's Baldragon, Baldragon. which was a, a forest. So it seems like a very fun piece of storyline that weaves its way around all these brilliant local place names. I do wonder at what point the story of the dragon was tied to the stone. Like, I wonder if it was kind of people saw these names in the surrounding area and used the story as a way to describe it, and they were like, oh, and there's also this stone, and that's where it all cul culminates. It's quite interesting as well. If you actually go around the route of them, which we did a few years back, all the little places, like the farm and the forest and Strathmartin and everything. It's all very close. And then the stone is about another two miles up the road for it. So that must have been quite the fight. Yeah. Well, it always seems to me that, like, when we have these stories that develop, you start with something 
and then people try and make it more localized which is why we have so many different like stories on the same theme right so who's to say that there wasn't a story that was passed along from pictish times about a great battle that took place maybe against a beast of some kind or what if the pictish beast it represents like a certain person or group of people and so there was a killing of a woman which became a killing of nine women and uh one man becomes a beast a dragon in fact and then you know as you hear this story round and round it goes and people say oh you know maybe it's connected to this stone maybe it's connected to this place called strath martin why is it called that maybe the hero was martin you know just that make it fit in your surroundings yeah i could totally see that and the stone itself, the Kerav markings on it that you went through there quite often, well, the Pictish markings are one of the ones that everything is really guesswork on mm-hmm. it. But the kind of ones yeah. that were shown there, like the serpent, the horse, the, the man, the horse, the, the Zedron thing, all of those together is typically, or a lot of the time, interpreted as, as some sort of monument to a battle or a fight mm-hmm. or something like that. So there quite possibly was some form of struggle at some point there. It's quite an impressive stone, that one as well. Yeah. Although it's strange to see it. It's been there for what what year did you think that one was? Uh, yeah, like, fifth or sixth. Yes, about 1500 century. years or it's been there. But since wow. fo- photography, what start, well, since the first picture of it about eight or nine years ago, it's become so much less visible. And it's just weird to think, you know. Acid rain, man. <clears throat> Well, I don't know if that, that might be what it is. I've, I've always found it strange on a lot of these picture stones that they've survived as well as they did because that one as well, and quite a lot of them are on sandstone, mm-hmm. which is a very soft material. Like if you even look at Victorian buildings, a lot of them are built of sandstone and all the details have faded from a lot of them if they're in face and wind or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, What I always wonder about picture stones, though, is, you know, it's the mystery over the Pictish beast. I think people are generally of the view that it's maybe like something from the sea i think that's but, quite a recent opinion isn't it uh, yeah whereas like i mean bridgefoot it's quite inland from the river tay and the north sea um so i mean it's not un- it's not unrealistic that the people around that area might have been to the sea but like in a time without cars you'd probably be a good couple of hours from the sea yeah. um so I just wonder what it and like, it's, and it crops up everywhere. Yeah, it's not specifically localized to Fife or Tayside or anything. It's it's a broad yeah area. It's a very s- similar depiction on all of them. It's not like it it vastly differs really. So I mean, it must represent something out with of the like the literal interpretation yeah, of it. Very specific to that culture yeah. that's yeah, universally understood. Like, whenever I see studies about Pictish writing, it's all about. Ah, oh, so this here's a boat. So they're talking about a boat and they're talking about this specific style of boat and whatever. But if you look at things like Egyptian hieroglyphics, just because it's pictograms doesn't mean it's discussing what's in there. We know how hieroglyphics work, but we know that like, oh, this picture of an eye actually represents the sun or like the uh, God. It's not, they're not talking about an eye. So sometimes I wonder how much of like, the knowledge we have about picture stones is just on this assumption that the people were just drawing what they see and it wasn't a marker telling people information.
So the stone I'm going to be talking about is in Melrose. Melrose is a small Scottish town known for its beautiful abbey. It lies beneath three peaks, the Eildon Hills. At the northern slope of the Eildon North Hill, you'll find a small stone marker. On it is written, this stone marks the site of the Eildon Tree, where legend says he met the Queen of the Fairies and where he was inspired to utter the first notes of the Scottish Muse. So who is this he? He is Thomas the Rhymer, and he's one of the most famous men in Scottish folklore, not only because he genuinely existed, but because he was a prophet who could tell the future. So the legend goes a little like this. Thomas lay under a tree at the foot of the Eildon Hill, resting in the rare sunlight. A soft breeze combed through his hair as he sat back and listened to the rustling leaves, the bird song, and the bells. His eyes opened. The bells. Coming up the lane towards him was a magnificent horse with 39 silver bells gently ringing in its long mane, creating a soft tune that melded with the natural sound surrounding him. On top of the horse sat the most beautiful woman Thomas had ever seen in his life. For a moment, he thought she might have been the Virgin Mary. However, she wore clothing that was more suited to a goddess of nature or an Amazon. She carried a bow and quiver and led three strong greyhounds and three broad hunting dogs. Thomas, of course, bowed with respect, uttering humble words of awe and of interest. The woman laughed, dismissing his politeness until he was encouraged to be a touch bolder. She seemed charmed by his wooing but replied she could only be with him if he agreed to become her slave, as she should. Before they had finished speaking, however, Thomas watched in horror as her beautiful features melted into a ghastly visage while her flesh shrank until it was pulled taut over her bones. The woman transformed into a hag right before his eyes. Yet still, King Simp Thomas was enchanted and accepted the woman's offer to join her in her home. They travelled through a cavern for three days, until they finally emerged into a beautiful orchard. Thomas lurched towards one of the trees, halting only when the lady warned him not to touch any of the apples. These apples, she said, are the very apples which caused the fall of man, and they would cause Thomas's fall too. Thomas regretfully turned away, feeling every twang of hunger played deep within his belly. The lady, directed, sorry, the lady directed his attention to where the path split into four roads. One road weaved its way towards paradise. A rather more well-worn path sloped downwards towards punishment. Another path brought souls to a milder place of pain where prayer may yet release them. The couple started towards the fourth road, however, which soon brought them to a verdant land and a tall castle. There, the lady said, lives my husband, the king of Elfland, and where I am his queen. For seven days, Thomas stayed at the castle, dancing and reveling with the fairies and elves as he partook in feast after feast. At the end of seven days, the queen approached him and told him it was time to go home. Thomas was unwilling to vanish just yet because he'd just seen another plate of venison brought out, actually, and a fetching fairy woman making eyes at him from across the dance floor. But the queen warned him that the devil would arrive the following day to take tribute, and he would surely be chosen. More importantly, while seven days had passed in Elfland, seven years had flown by back in Melrose. So Thomas agreed to leave with her. She delivered him to the very spot where he had vanished seven years ago, at the foot of the North Eildon Hill. She left him with a gift, 
a tongue that could only tell the truth. At first, this kind of annoyed Thomas, because how is he supposed to tell his pals that their clothes looked great and not hideous? And how is he supposed to say that their new babies were perfect angels instead of like every other baby ever? However, he soon found that when conversation turned towards the future, he had things to say that rang with absolute truth. Of course, a tongue that could only speak the truth could therefore only say true things about what is to come. And so Thomas became known as a prophet, predicting Alexander III's death, for example, and that King James VI and I would rule over Britain from the north to the very south, which is exciting at the time because Britain, of course, had never been united. Thomas's story is quite interesting as it can be traced back to the late 1200s when Thomas himself was still alive. That's right, Thomas the Rhymer, or Thomas Learmont, was a real person who lived from 1220 to 1298. He recorded his prophecies and many of them actually did come true. So if you decide to visit the Rhymer Stone, watch out for a beautiful woman who might just whisk you away for seven years. We unfortunately did not encounter any when we were there. I was literally, I was on the lookout. I would have stayed. <laughs> Whisk me away, Fairy Quinn. I was just going to say just a little bit about Thomas the Rhymer, because normally when we come across this folklore stuff, it's just, you might have like a name that's familiar, but it's unusual that you can say, oh yes, and this was a real person that definitely existed. But Thomas did. Like we have proof that he was alive and that he lived in a place called Earlston, where you can still visit the ruins of his old tower. Um, we know he was born Thomas Learmont, and we know he interacted with a lot of earls and lords in Scotland at the time, and that's who he delivered th these prophecies to. Um, so one of his prophecies, like I said, was that Alexander III would die from a fall from a horse, and he made that to the Earl of March in Dunbar Castle the day before it happened, which I find pretty cool. And then just like a really cool theme I was thinking about when I was researching was this idea of like, the elasticity of time in folklore because it's so common to have a main character go missing or go away with the fairies and come back and it's years have passed and he's not aged a day or um you know they come back and suddenly the years fall back upon them and that's how they die so there's this famous story of um i think oshin sounds like my name <laughs> uh, from irish folklore who goes away with a fairy queen and then when he comes back he becomes like an old man because all the years come back to him even though he's been young for like hundreds of years um i and there's i was just trying to find out like where does this come from and there's not really that much written on it but i did find some theories so one person was like it represents an altered state of consciousness so i.e drugs um <laughs> And this idea that you have like a waking dream where time just feels different. And so the only way you can describe it to people is that, no, I was away for years. I was away for years and years and I feel changed when I come back. There's also this idea of someone leaving a village for a time and coming back and they're almost unrecognizable because of the things that they've been through and the things that they've done. And it's hard to like correlate this person who's left with the person who's come back like they're different they're completely changed and we have to have a reason for this oh it's because they're in fairyland not because they've just gone through a, a tough time maybe um there's another one which i quite liked which was the fairyland which exists outside time might represent the world of the dead so these people are returning to the living and 
when you return to mortal lands that's when all that tough stuff about living comes with you like aging and sadness so you only have a great time in the land of the dead and it's only tough in the land of the living um and this kind of aligns with this belief in an other world that is not heaven so these pagan beliefs and what happens after death we know that they existed and a lot of them were stamped out uh when catholicism came to the uk but they still existed in tales especially tales which have this huge like folkloric influence so maybe that fairyland tirnanog uh the gray lands as tolkien would call it like maybe this was just the pagan belief of what happens after you go to a land of plenty of feasting of revelry which we know happens in valhalla for example so it's just quite interesting to see how this adds in and we do have similar things in catholicism and christianity now we've got did i say i say catholicism early i mean christianity um we've got like people being visited by angels and people seeing heaven and they come changed and they come with prophecies and things like that so it's not an unusual thing the story did have that the, the pagan fourth option you had heaven hell purgatory and off to fairyland instead <laughs> And I took this story from Charles Tibbetts, which I think is written on the Folklore Scotland website. Um, and he was writing in 1890. So of course, like we don't know how much of this story has been altered to include little elements of Christianity to make it a bit more palatable maybe. Um, but I did like how he describes the final path to the land of the elves as like almost hidden away. You have to be with an elf in order to see it. Yeah, that is really fun. And I was also thinking that it's a very mild depiction of the Fairy Queen, I think. Because a lot of the time she's very... I mean, especially in the story of Tam Lin. Like, if she takes you, you're never seen again. But the fact that she actually says to Thomas, Nah, man, like, the devil's coming. You gotta get out of here. Like, you gotta go. Very different. Well, there was some chat about... They think... so. Tamlin was inspired by Thomas Reimer. The story is just like a different version of this same story. They think this is the OG. But then the Thomas the Reimer story is so similar to the tale of Oshin. Um, And he's taken by the fairy queen. The fairy queen says to him, like, I need you to come be my husband because you're one hot piece. And so he goes over to fairyland and they have a lovely marriage. So, you know, it's the same. And, like, the Queen of Fairies here is just, like, the same Thomas Re- Thomas the Rhymer. I'll be having some of, some of that. It's Maybe the Fairy like... Queen just goes through a lot of men, you know. She needs to just keep them... <laughs> As she should. What, what was the tree to do with it? So, it marks the site of the tree. The stone itself, like, Thomas wasn't laying against a stone. The stone wasn't there naturally. The townspeople erected the stone to show the site where Thomas returned. Because his prophecies gained such traction. And did he, re- he returned at a specific tree that used to be there? Was that what it was? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we went to see the stone actually when we went to Melrose. And there's a little, um, yeah, the little viewpoint. And they've got one of his prophecies written on there that says, um, if you return here to this very spot, you'll be able to look over the River Twee and see two bridges. And you can, which is pretty cool.
So I'm going to speak a bit about the Bran Seer. Uh, he was said to have lived in the 17th century, uh, so a bit more recent than Thomas the Rhymer. And unlike Thomas the Rhymer, there's quite a bit of debate over whether he actually existed or not. So the only real writings we can find about, well, early writings we can find about his prophecies were by a folklorist called Alexander Cameron um, and wrote quite a bit about the prophecies of the Brand Seer uh, and his life and how he travelled. Um, but very little could be found about him before that and that was in the kind of Victorian era that Alexander Cameron was writing. Um, so, as I say, there's a bit of debate. The In any of the records for the island, when they've looked back, his, his said name was... Uh, well, he was known as... Kenneth Mackenzie, but he was also known as, let me try and pronounce this one, uh, I think it's Kinnock Owen it's pronounced, it's spelt very differently, um, but that's the kind of Gaelic name that he had, and looking back at the, the Parliament records and everything that, that did a, not quite a sense of the time, but similar idea, it would have had a record of whoever was on the island in the 17th century, there was no record of uh, a Kinnock Owen living at that point, but the century beforehand, in the 16th century, there was a man by that name who was in the Parliament records because a warrant had been issued for his arrest for witchcraft. So it's thought maybe Alexander Cameron took some liberties in his writing of the, uh, the, the prophecies, but that he was maybe influenced by this earlier real figure who was accused of witchcraft um, during the kind of witch trials of the area, in which quite a few other people were accused of witchcraft. I think from my research on it, uh, he was the only one in that area that was actually a man that was accused of it. Mm. Uh, all the rest were women. So, But moving over to his prophecies now, uh, he had quite a lot of interesting ones. Uh, one of his most famous ones was that the was prophesizing the formation of the Caledonia Canal. Um, so he said that ships will sail round the back of Tomnahurik Hill. Um, and when the Caledonia Canal was built, it allowed for ships to sail down behind Tomnahurik. So he was bang on there. And that was a good couple of hundred years. But from what Alexander Cameron said, a good couple of hundred years before uh, the building of the Caledonia Canal. So everyone was quite quite impressed with that one. He also was said to have accurately predicted the Highland Clearances, where he said the clans will become so effeminate as to flee from their country before an army of sheep. Mm. So, which, debatably, that, that did come true. They were forced out by the, the influx yeah. of sheep and had to, to move away. Um, it was said that Tom Nehurk will be under lock and key and the fairies will be secured within uh, and they did eventually build a cemetery on top of the hill with kind of tombs and vaults and as such it was said that the fairies were contained under the graves and, and slabs of those that were buried there um, he also as well as the kind of more general ones did have quite specific prophecies um, so he said the Mackenzies will lose all possessions at Loch Lash, after which it will fall into the hands of an Englishman who will have one son and two daughters. 
Um, and then after he dies, the property will return to the Madisons who it originally who originally owned the land, um, and a castle will be built at Back Back McLaren. Something like that from my writing. Um and of that, most of it came true. The Mackenzies did lose possession of the land. It was taken over by an Englishman who everybody was kind of hinting at him for quite a while. Oh, you're you're gonna be the one from the legend. Um, but 17 years went past and he didn't have any children at all. And then suddenly in quick succession, he had one son and two daughters. And following his death, the MP for the region, one Mr. Madison, bought over the land from the son. And it returned to his family namesake who had originally owned the land back before the Mackenzies. Um, he built a castle but uh, in the lands, but not at the exact location that... Uh, the Brahan seer had said. So, so far that ledge is not fully complete, so we really need the Lord to get on building some new castles to really finalise that one down, but I'm still saying it did a fairly good shot with that. Um, so, there was quite a lot of talk with the Brahan seer about his legends, to, well, his prophecies to do with bridges over the River Ness as well. Um, there was said to be certain things that would happen on five bridges and on nine bridges being over the nest. Now, this is the one where I think there's a, a bit more contention about um, because a lot of popular media a few years back were catching on to the brand here and were writing little kind of listicles on the ones he's come true of him and the, the bridges over the nest one was something they really grasped onto um, and they said, oh, in... Um, when the fifth bridge was built, um, then World War Two broke out. And th that was the terrible thing that was to happen when the fifth bridge happened. There was meant to be a, a horrible disaster. Um, and, and that's what they said had happened there. And they said just as the ninth bridge was built, the Alpha Papa disaster happened and the big fire on the oil rig. And on that one, there was meant to be a disaster, which if I can find which page of my notes are written on... Yep, um, the, there would be fire, blood and calamity when the Ninth Bridge was built. So that seemed to fairly accurately reflect his prophecies there. But uh, looking back at some of the, the earlier books and the one that I've got here that the introduction was written by Andrew Lang, it was written in 1935, so before World War II, um, and by which point he had said they were already built the eighth bridge and were working on the ninth. So not quite sure <laughs> where people have got their dates or whether they're all defining what a bridge over the nest quite categorizes as, or maybe the definition of the river nest has changed in extent some point between World War Two and now. I don't know. Um, so I'm just calling a little bit of uh, question over over whether the, the bridges over the nest one's quite quite all there. But he did apparently have a couple other quite good ones as well. There was um uh he predicted the Battle of Culloden uh, as he was walking over the site of the battlefield uh, about a hundred and odd years before it had happened. He said, O Dramusi, thy bleak moor shall ere many generations have passed away be stained with the best blood of the highlands glad i am that i will not see the day 
for it will be a fearful period. Uh, and then it continues on narrating about uh, how there will be no mercy on either side, etc., etc. Um, spelling out the kind of details of a bloody battle between clans. Um, so it was fairly well on there. And it was, as I say, when he was walking over the actual field of the battle itself, uh, apparently about 100 years before it had happened. And then my... I'd probably say my personal favourite one here um, is the prediction to do with the Channel Tunnel and the Scottish Parliament. So he said um, when you, people are able to walk dry shod from England to France, Scotland will have a parliament. And in 1994, the Channel Tunnel was formed. And in 1999, Scotland got a parliament. The next bit I'm going to go on is about the ones relating to rocks. Since oh, yeah. the theme of our episode is stones. Depending on who you ask, either four or three stone-related... Prophecies? Endeavours. Prophe well, they weren't all prophecies, so... The first of which was relating to his mother. Um, so it said she also had the sight. And on one eve, she was standing in the courtyard and she saw all of the bodies rise up from their graves. And they went for a wander about and she just stayed and kind of watched. And then they all came back, but there was one grave empty. She kind of went and stood by it and walking from just outside the courtyard, long after everybody else had returned to their graves, was a beautiful young woman. And she walked towards uh, the Brand Seer's mother. And the mother asked her why she was so much later than the rest. And she said her journey had been far. She had to travel all the way across to Norway in order to uh, find, see her family and her country again because she had drowned while washing clothes and been swept out to sea and she was actually a Norwegian princess. Um, and the mother blocked her getting back into her grave and said she would only do let her in if she gave her son the sight as well. So the Norwegian princess gave her a little blue stone which she then passed to her son and allowed him to come to these prophecies so that's the first one relating to a stone it was a little blue pebble from his mother well or a norwegian dead princess or both the next story was about a stone that you quite often see in pictures of the brand seer it is a round stone with a hole in it quite often called a hag stone in scotland um and it's said to have magical powers in that when he lifted up and looked through it he could see any kind of falsehoods or trickeries or um, kind of magical things about him. Um, and he was said to, well, most of the tales in this one, there's a few different variations. Most of them relate to either his wife or a friend's wife um, bringing him a jug of milk and him going to about to drink it, but when doing so, finding an uncomfortable stone under him lifting it up and looking through to see that this jug of milk is poisoned. Mm. So in one of the versions of the story, his wife is very grumpy and angry at him and is fed up with him and tries to poison him. In another one, I think there is a jealous wife of a farmer who tries to poison him. And in another one, someone else is trying to poison him and thinks he will only drink the food, drink the, the milk and eat the food prepared by his wife. So tricks her into to putting the poison into the food uh, and then he is uh, 
set about that way. But in all of them, he finds the stone, sees through it, and is not poisoned and killed, and that's why he's able to make all the prophecies. Um, and it's also said that the first time he looked through the stone, he went blind in the one eye. So he's only able to see visions and prophecies and falsehoods through that eye. Um, and he was only able to see real life through the other one. So that's the, the second stone story. The third one is a, is to do with the prophecy he made. Um, and it was to do with eagle stone, which is an old Celtic stone. Um, and it was said that if it falls down three times, Loch Usi will flood the valley below it. And it has fallen down twice. And so scared were the locals that it might fall down a third time. They've set it in concrete so it won't do it again. <laughs> and the fourth and final prophecy. Or not prophecy. The fourth and final stone related story from our lovely Brancier Is to do with the stone that marks the site of his demise. So... Unfortunately, one day the brand seer got a bit smart with his prophecies and wound up some rather powerful people. He prophesied that the... Um, this one I don't think it's so much prophesying as just grassing on. But he said that the, the Earl of Seaforth... So he said the Earl of Seaforth was sleeping with a French woman. Um, and that wound up the Lady of Seaforth to no end. Um, because he was trying to dishonour her husband and the family, and um, she she just wasn't for having it. And anyway, they weren't very happy with the, the seers and the witches and everything like that anyway. So she thought, you know what, we're going to punish him. Um, so she caught him, and she, put, she covered him in tar, put him in a barrel full of spikes, rolled him to a specific site, and set him on fire. <laughs> and that's how he died. Uh, and that's where they've placed the stone to mark the, the final resting place of the Bran Seer. But is that not often the way with folklore? I want to know why he wound up so many people that they were out to poison him. Well, that was before was he was that? even like. Three people tried to poison him. Well, it was. Three it, different options. Yeah, it was different yeah. options. It wasn't all, all simultaneously. Right, okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, listen, if I'm poisoned. I, I know one person who maybe would poison me. Abraham here is like, all right, so there's 10 people who may have wanted to poison me so badly. Like, come on. He, he Listen, of course he was going to be covered in tar and set on fire. It's a matter of time. <laughs> well, what's strange is that bit where he's initially first like looking to be poisoned is before he even really comes up with most of the visions because he doesn't have the main... Seer stone by that point, he just has this kind of little second sight stone that lets him see dead people and stuff. I could definitely see it as a good fall from grace story. You know, small time psychic makes it to the big city, pisses off a lord, gets put in a barrel and dies. <laughs> Burned alive. <laughs> that classic happy ending. One of the interesting things about doing the reading for us, this one though, is I did look at some of the kind of Victorian text side of stuff. And then I read a chunk of this book that was written in 1935. But then quite a few of the prophecies are said to have been performed since then, like the Channel Tunnel, Scottish Parliament, then their argument to do with uh, World War Two and um, 
the Alpha Papa disaster and things like that, which I'm still on the fence as to how many bridges were over the next, but it, a fun part of the research has been seeing what they actually think has happened since even like this book was written, looking at it in 1935. So it's been a, an interesting one to, to research. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Or like circumstances change as well. Because if people, so say somebody heard one of these prophecies and thought, you know, we can't let this happen. It sort of gets passed down the generations and then the prophecy doesn't fulfill because people are like, oh, we can't have this happen. That stone that's been set in concrete, what if something happens to the land around it that means the stone does fall mm-hmm. and then the land gets flooded? Concrete doesn't stop everything. There's also some quite fun ones, like in this one, they did do that section on ones that could be interpreted as having been like partially fulfilled or fulfilled. So there was one that was to do with uh, like a, a terrible like battle between, well, it was implied to be a battle between clans in which one that was the dominant one they knew would be completely wiped out and it would just be the other clan there and there was not a terrible battle between them or anything but through the way i think it was through the farming and then the change of cultures and industry in the area that clan ended up pretty much being disappeared from that whole region and the one that he said would become the dominant clan did so it wasn't well maybe quite... it wasn't a battle against each other maybe it was yeah. a battle against circumstance mm. and i think a lot of the time with your prophecies much like the oracle of delphi it is <laughs> Uh, what you interpret it to mean. (laughs) (laughs) Scottish folklore is full of tales about stones, as we've seen tonight. And when you look at the Granny Kempick stone in Garok, it's easy to see where this fascination lies. Kempick Stone's origins can be traced back to around 2000 BC and over the years, locals and visitors alike have left their markings on the stone, from ancient symbols to initials and, unfortunately, even modern graffiti. But regardless of what mark was left, it's fascinating to me how we can all just walk past this part of history every day and see the imprint left by people of generations past. The stone is currently situated overlooking the River Clyde, which will be an important part of the story later on. But just to give you a bit of a visual first, the stone itself is almost six foot tall, or around 1.8 metres. And its shape and outline very much resemble a person wearing a hooded cloak, specifically someone slightly hunched over, perhaps like an old lady in posture. And back in the day, it was common to refer to the old wise woman as simply Granny. And this is where the stone gets part of its name. And for a long time, it was just known as the Granny Stone. The Kempick part is actually the more modern addition because it's part of it's because it's the name of the street on which the stone currently resides. In present day, this stone is in the middle of a large residential area and next to some of the local town's busiest shops. So in order to protect it, there is currently a metal fence around it that makes it only accessible via footpath. So you can look at it from afar, but you can't touch it. Um, if you were to touch it, you'd be trespassing the kind of fenced off area. Um, and there's quite a few videos on YouTube where you can kind of see the stone and loads of pictures online as well. So I do recommend you look it up because it is a really fascinating looking stone. And nearby to it, if you're local to the area, you'll probably notice the metal sign for the Granny Kempick stone signposted just below the staircase that leads you up to it. But anyway, back to the stone's folklore history. There are several legends about the Granny Stone and almost all of them revolve around some combination of providing protection, fruitful harvests, or fertility. 
The sign at the gate of the stone also suggests its origins may have been part of an altar to the pagan god Baal, which specifically suggests where, where some of these more modern connections may have stemmed from, as Baal was the god of fertility, weather, and specifically rainstorms. The stone was also said to have physical powers of its own, with stories about it rotating at its post three times at midnight every night, and having powers over the wind and the strength of the tides. Although this might sound terrifying, the locals actually saw the stone as a protector, and one of the traditions associated with the stone is for newlyweds to walk around it seven times to receive Granny Kempuk's blessing for their marriage, and potentially also help them conceive a child. This actually almost reminds me a little bit of a story we did a few months back about the Kaliach, who was also a very tall witch with powers over the weather and the seasons, as well as being able to bless couples with fertility. As all of these have been folklore tales, I do wonder where the inspirations came um, and how they all created this visual of what we picture today when we think of a scary witch. There are some more recent accounts of the common traditions related to the stone. In a book written by a Reverend David McRae, written in 1880, he talks about how sailors and fishermen had their own ritual where they would take a basket full of sand from the shore of the Clyde and then walk around the granny stone seven times while chanting. Although sadly the words of the chant were not recorded and do appear to have been lost to history, this ritual was performed before and after a voyage out to sea just to ensure the safe return of everybody on board and also a fruitful catch. This tradition possibly stems back many centuries prior, however, as there are records from 1662 of a woman named Mary Lament, who was accused of being a witch and was executed for performing a dance ritual around the stone on a Sunday, which is part of the ritual, um, but this was said to be part of a spell that would make um, ships potentially even sink at sea or just not return to shore, and that meant that many of the sailors were at risk of not returning to their families. Mary had confessed all of this and said that a coven of witches had plotted to turn the stone evil. And after this confession, she was burned at the stake. In more recent times, and as belief in the supernatural has somewhat dwindled, new local traditions have been born. For example, on New Year's Eve, or as we call it, Hogmanay, the people of Garok often dress Granny Kempik in a winter shawl and apron hat. And also the stone was featured in a short ITV series from 1987. Um, it was a show called Shadow of the Stone, which revolved around a young girl whose past self was a witch burned at the stake, much like Mary. And for some of the non-folklore suggestions about the stone's origins, while many of the marks are completely undecipherable, experts have suggested that some of them could be Mason's marks, um, leading him to think the stone was previously part of a much larger structure, perhaps even the local castle, despite that being almost three miles away. Oddly, the stone also has a perfectly round hole quite near the bottom, and the hole seems to go part of the way into the stone, but there's no exit hole, so we're not sure exactly if it goes straight across or if it leads elsewhere through the stone. But this in particular has led people to think that it may have been some sort of counterweight, or used in some form of transportation, and it may have been broken. And this might be what's caused its unique shape, which has become more curved as it was weathered over the years. If this is true, I'd be even more curious where it came from and where the other part may be. Perhaps it's simply fallen into the river below, or part, or it's now part of another structure that people of Garok also walk past every single day. But what I think is even more of a shame is that the stone can no longer be honored in the way it had been for so many years prior. 
Its current position makes it impossible to walk around it seven times. Certainly couldn't do it as a sailor or newlyweds. There's simply not enough space. And I'm not one to start rumours, but I did read an article that Kempick Street, where the rock resides, was named the smelliest street in the whole area of Inverclyde. So I think something is definitely a bit off about that. What I thought was really interesting was that, you know how you were saying that like um, people used to walk around it for the safe return of ships? But then mm-hmm. suddenly, when we're accusing people of being witches, oh, they're not bringing in the safe return of ships. You know, they're encouraging the sinking of ships. Um, and then she just so happened to confess that that's what she was doing. Um, I just thought that was very interesting. Also, if you live on a little tiny island, well, not really an island, but it's it's quite far out, why would you not want the ships to bring in more food? Like, what are you going to eat? <laughs> I looked up a photo of the stone um, just while you were speaking there, and it definitely does look like a granny, but then there was one angle of it where it looked quite phallic, and then you said that it like people, people walk around it for like fertility and things, and we're like, ah! <laughs> it's quite interesting that we do have a lot of like just weird looking stones that become such a, a hub for like belief and story and superstition. It's like, why does it look like that? And this one does look like like a little person. I'm already giving it a personality and a name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm writing a little story about it in my mind already. I'm like, I've never met her, but I'm so attached to her. Right. I'm imagining it picking up its like skirts and two tiny little rocky ankles coming out. Stops it, chases teenagers away from residential areas. <laughs> Stop making noise. It's funny that it's always stones, isn't it? That I mean, we give a lot of things stories, but well, I was I was just gonna say I kind of wonder how many of these stories were made to help people remember landmarks at a time where maybe you didn't have access to maps in the way we have access to them now. Because like, if you told me I've lived in Dundee for years and years now, and if you told me, all right. Find your way to the Odeon. I'd be lost. <laughs> I need Google to do that for me. I know my way to three places in Dundee and that's it. But like, you know, way back when, when you didn't really have that access to things, and especially when maps were kind of more for people who were, like, you know your local area really well. But if you were told, all right, you need to go visit someone now who lives a couple of hours away, that could be a really scary journey to undertake. And... Mm-hmm. You, you need to know those landmarks. And if you think, okay, I need to find this stone that looks like a little old granny, that's maybe a bit easier than trying to find, like, a street. I wonder yeah, if that's how it ended up being stood up as well, because they were like, oh, yeah, just, you know, find me by the big old rock. And they're like, oh, well, I can't <laughs> see a big old rock. And they're like, fine, well, we'll stand it up on its side then. You'll be able to see it then. It's, like, <laughs> taller than a man. <laughs> what I like about your idea there, Roshin, with, like, the kind of navigation aspect, it made me think of... Tamashanter, do you know the verse where he's narrating past the well where this happened and past the bridge where this yeah. happened and it, it's all like the journey is marked by landmarks mm-hmm. and in that case spooky to build the narrative there but I, I think they probably did think that's mm-hmm. where that I've passed that well, the, the well of whatever I've passed the, and it helps you mark your well, route. That's the thing, I think that's how people navigate their world so like if I say how do I get to somewhere? My dad loves street names, right? My dad loves 
directions and road names and service stations. So if I say I'm going somewhere, he will give me a convoluted description of which roads to take. I don't have a clue. But if he says to me, like, oh, you drive towards that Asda and then you go towards, you know, the big building with the red roof and then you take, you go around the circle and you take the third. I'm like, okay, yeah, I know that place, I know that place, I know that place. I can, like, join the dots up. I think that's how a lot of people understand the world. And what? like I bet like Rasheen, you say that you know, you know three places in Dundee, but I bet I could direct <laughs> you to most places if I just I like how we've now reduced this magical, mystical standing stone with lots of folklore around <laughs> it to to our equivalent of a big Asda. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Kofi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.